All right, so before we begin our discussion tonight, uh, which as you can see is about the simplicity of God, I want to ask you a question. What do you think is the most popular attribute of God? What do you think? The love of God. Anyone else? Sovereignty is mercy. What is that? Grace. Grace is kind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's about what I would think. Okay. Um, now, if I was going to ask you to think to yourself, right? So, so don't answer out loud here, but to think personally, what is, what is your favorite attribute of God? Or, or maybe a better way to put it would be, which attributes do you think about the most? What do you pray about the most? Or which attributes get you the most Excited. It's an interesting question. I mean, think, what would you say? Or maybe, here's another question. You don't have to answer this out loud, but what do you think is the most important attribute of God? Or perhaps, what are some options? What are some things that come to mind? Uh, Let me hear you. Forgiveness, sovereignty, control, mercy. Mercy. Yeah, okay, good. Um, yeah, so now, now I confess these questions are a little bit misleading, but that's, that's to prove a point because I would answer really the exact same way that you've answered for, for all of these. Um, but, but I think they're a little bit misleading because they suggest that some of God's attributes are better than others or more praiseworthy than others or more favorable to the human uh, condition than, than others, right? Like perhaps we might be inclined to think that his love is more important than his wrath, or that his holiness is more important than his justice. But that can't be true, can it? Tonight, we're going we're gonna to learn why. We're studying the doctrine of God's simplicity. Someone asked me, are we doing another big word tonight? I'm like, no, it's a simple word, right? It's got the word simplicity. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I find it a little more difficult than, than our previous topics, right? Um, now, now, we found ourselves in a little series thinking about the, the attributes of God. And we've started with some of the lesser known attributes, right? Things that, they're attributes that are unique to God. We don't share in these. So we, we call them the incommunicable attributes, right? And, and first, we talked about God's incomprehensibility. You remember? We learned that no one can fully comprehend the essence of God. God is, fine, God is infinite, and we are finite. And the infinite can never fit or be fully comprehended by the finite. So we cannot fully know him, but we can know him truly, right? God has revealed himself to us. It's the incomprehensibility of God. Last week, we talked about God's, who remembers? Aseity, right? His independence, Meaning that God is of himself or from himself. That God possesses all life in and of himself. I'm still reeling about some of those things that we talked about last week. We said that God is the fullness of life in and of himself. All good things originate in him. He doesn't get it from somewhere else. It's not added to him. And as we mentioned last week... 
All of these doctrines and others are, are really interrelated, and tonight you're going to see you're going to see why. Now, just as in the last couple of weeks, I do want to give you uh, a little bit of a warning encouragement, right? Um, some, of the, some of these ideas do seem a, a little bit philosophical or, or might seem hard to understand. But just keep in mind, we are not talking about a God who is small. And we don't have brains that are big, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, that, that's more true for some of us than others, right? We are talking about staggering realities that are beyond the limits of human reason and even human language. Not only do we not have minds capable of understanding, but there are not words able to describe. Okay, so hang in there, right? I think, you know, I just encourage us. God is worth our most intense mental efforts. Is he not? And I'll try to illustrate as much as I can as I go, and we'll try to make some application at the end. And I'll just go and tell you, uh, the slides are going to be available on the, on the internet. Whenever I have slides, I post them with, with the sermon. So uh, someone last week was trying to take a picture of all 36 slides. You don't need to do that. They're, they're, they'll be available tomorrow morning. Um, okay, so let's, let's ask, what do we mean when we talk about the simplicity of God? Well, to put it simply... I'll do that a lot. Terry, I'm glad you're here tonight. I think you'd appreciate this. To put it simply, the simplicity of God means God is not made up of parts. He's not made up of parts. God is not made, right? We, we understand that. But we could also say that God is not able to be divided into parts, some theologians prefer to call this the unity of God. I think simplicity is helpful, but you can think of those hand in hand, right? When you think in terms of, of simplicity, you can think unified. So when we think of God being simple or unified, we're saying God is not complex. Now you might think, hey, you just described this God that's incomprehensible. That sounds pretty complex to me. Okay, I get that. That's, that's fair. But, but here's what I mean, right? We're not saying that God is simple as in he's easy to understand, like a children's book. That's not what we mean. But we're saying that God is simple in that he does not consist of parts. Okay? So, for example, um, the, the more parts or components a thing has, the more complex it is. Right? An iPhone is complex. A banana is simple. Right? Y'all are looking at me like you don't... Have you, have you had a banana before? Bananas are fantastic, right? And they don't ever ding in service. And Anyways. Um, an iPhone has more parts, so it's complex. So, so when we think of God's nature, we are affirming that he is simple in his essence, right? So we could say, God is not like pie. Right? God is not like a pie which can be divided up and sliced. So, so we don't want to say that God is four parts love and four parts holiness and, you know, one part wrath, right? Why? Because there's a problem. If we say that part of him is love, that means that part of him is not love. Right? Right? If part of him is love, part of him is not love. And if part of him is not love, then there's a deficiency in his love and a deficiency in God. God can't be perfect love if he is part love and part wrath. 
So the doctrine of simplicity teaches us, helps us understand that God's perfections cannot be divided or prioritized. Keep in mind, we'll work on application as a bit, but just try to, try to track with me, right? Now, so I think what happens is the way that we, the way that, right, so we would separate this, but the way we talk about God's perfections can sometimes, it can sometimes be misleading, right? We might say that God has love, and, and we know what we mean, right? And that God has power, but it would be, it, that almost suggests that God has love in addition to himself, Right? It would be better to say that God is love or that God is power. Right? The Bible tells us this, that God is love. This would protect the unity or the simplicity of God's essence. Right now, I know all this might seem abstract, but let's think about this statement together. Every attribute of God is completely true of all his character. All right, if you want a summary statement, that's a good one. Every attribute of God is completely true of all his character. And that's really good news. You know why? Because God is glorious in all of his beauty. All of God is infinitely glorious. All of his attributes are glorious. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that's nice, Pastor, but is it biblical? Show it to me in the Bible, and we'll, and that's a good question. I hope you're thinking about that, and I believe that it is biblical. If you look carefully, the Bible actually never singles out one attribute above the rest. Never singles out one attribute above the rest. So take, for example, 1 John 1, verse 5. God is light. Okay, so you might think, okay, so that is God's essence. God is light until you turn the page. God is love. Well, wait a minute. God is light. God is love. Which is it? Is it that God is light or is it that God is love? Well, we know the answer. It's both, right? God is light and God is love. We could make that in a pie chart, couldn't we? It'd be... God is light and God is love. There's no parts. He's all light and he is all love. It does not mean that God is part light and that part of him is love. And it does not mean that he's more love than light. And it doesn't mean that he's partly light or partly love. Right? Anyone's head hurting? This is a common theme. Next week, take an Advil before you come and we'll be preemptive, right? What this means is we should not think of God as being more love than he is light. See what that means? Because we don't, we don't want to exclude or diminish any of his glory. If we think he's more love, then we're thinking his light isn't as great. Right? Rather, God himself is light and God himself is love. Okay, let's, t- let's take another example. I promise, bear with me. We'll, we'll keep working on this. Let's take another example. We talked about this a few weeks back. Exodus chapter 34, right? The Lord passed before him. We talked about how God is proclaiming, he's describing his essence to Moses. We talked about that, but look what, listen to what he says. He proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, so when God revealed his glory to Moses, he's talking about himself. He's revealing himself. And look, he didn't single out any one attribute, did he? Look at all he included. That's quite a list, right? It's a little different than what he told Moses at the burning bush. What do you tell him then? I am that I am, right? I remember reading that as a kid. I'm like, you are what, <laughs> right? What? <laughs> we'll come to that in a minute. But I mean, but think about this. What, he didn't, it wasn't just one attribute. He says he is the Lord, right? We speak of his sovereignty, that he's merciful, that he is gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he abounds in love, steadfast love and faithfulness, right? He forgives iniquity, yet he is just. And he will by no means clear the guilty. That's an indication of his wrath. God revealed many of his attributes, attributes that even seem to come into conflict with one another, right? God shows love, and, and you know, he shows mercy, but he's also just. How can he show mercy and be just? Just is bringing judgment, right? It can seem to be conflicting, right? But each of these characteristics is true of all of God. Perhaps this is why Moses declared to Israel, that God is one. Okay, I think this is the hardest part so far, right? So let's try to see if we can conceptualize this a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I find this hard to conceptualize, so I'm going I'm to share some diagrams. And these are, I, by the way, I can't, I think Mark would probably say the same thing. We can never attribute all the authors and teachers that have helped us. I wish that I could, but if I did that in every sermon, you'd be getting a bibliography every, you know, every night. So we, we learn from so many people. This, this particular thing is from Wayne Grudem. And if you can't read all that, that's okay. It looks, um, actually, if you sit... Sit far away, you were warned. Um, okay, but, 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 okay, so let's think about it like this. So this is a diagram that would say, we don't want to say that, uh, we want to say that God is not simply a collection of his attributes. Those little circles have attributes, right? Love, wrath, aseity, holiness, omnipresence, <clears throat> and there's, there's, pl <clears throat> there's plenty more. So we don't want to say that he's just a collection of his attributes as if he is parts, right? Part love, part wrath, part holiness, part of satiety, part omniscience, on and on and on, right? Think back to the pie illustration. It's not that God is a slice of love, but rather that he is love himself, okay? So we should put an X here. This doesn't work. Or we don't want to say that... Uh, we want to be careful to say that God's attributes are not an addition to his character, right? That, like he brought them on. It's not that God took on love. His attributes are not added to him. Instead, God's whole being includes all of his attributes. So we can always say God is entirely just. He's entirely love. He's entirely jealous. Now that fits together. So it means that each attribute contributes to every other attribute. Okay, now that's profound. Let me say, let me say that again. Each attribute attributes qualities to every other attribute. So let's see if we can think about this. We understand that his love helps us, helps explain his mercy, right? It's easy to see how those are connected, right? That his love qualifies his mercy, but what about his wrath? 
How, how, how does his love and his wrath or his mercy and his wrath fit together? Well, the Bible teaches us that God's love, that in his love, he does not set aside his wrath. And in his wrath, he does not set aside his love. Because God's attributes never conflict with one another. God doesn't move among them, right, as the situation might need. He's not, he's not moody. All right, so, so here's an example. This is a glorious one. And you've thought of this before, I'm sure. In Romans 3, we read that Christ was put forward by God as a propitiation by his blood to be received by us by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over, there's mercy, former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, there's justice, and the justifier, there's savior, of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so this concept of God helps us understand why Jesus had to die and what it is that he accomplished. God is not only love. He's also just. There's a whole movement among Christians that wants to prioritize God's love over his justice. I just had a conversation this week. person told me, can't imagine that hell is real because God is love. What's the problem? God's not only love, and he's not part love. He's also just, right? It helps us understand that. Since he's just, he can't simply overlook sin. Plus, he's also righteous. And since he's righteous, he hates sin. That's his wrath. So he poured out his wrath on Christ, whom he loves, so that he can justify or count righteous those who have faith. Right? So we can see here many seemingly conflicting attributes that all come into view, and they seem to conflict with one another, but they don't. The cross teaches us that God's wrath, his hatred for sin, does not conflict with his love. You see the implications there? Hell can be real and God still be loving. It does not conflict with his love. Let's think about the problem of parts. Why is it a problem that we would say, why is it a problem if, if God was made up of parts? Uh, this is why I came up with, there's probably more, but this is all I understand. So I'm not going to try to explain what I don't understand. Um, let's think about it like this. First of all, oh, you're not supposed to see them all at once. I forgot the animation. Let's look at one at a time. Parts are deficient, right? Parts, by their very nature, are not whole, Okay, so if you think back to our pie chart, slice one is not slice two. And if God is part love and part wisdom, then he lacks wisdom and he lacks love because there's only part of it, right? So they lack wholeness and they lack fullness. A part is deficient. Okay, so if none of that makes sense to you, let's think about an illustration. Think about a car. A car is made up of parts, right? That's easy to conceptualize. If I showed you an alternator... Who knows what an alternator is or what it looks like, right? Okay, if I showed you an alternator, is that a car? Is an alternator a car? No. It's a car part. What about a wheel? How about a wheel and a tire? Let's put a wheel and a tire, right? Is, is that a car? No, it's a part of a car. But what if I showed you a car without a wheel? Is that a car? Well, <laughs> 
I don't want that car, all right? Good luck. Good luck getting to church in that. What about a car without an engine, right? You, you see what we're going? You're not going anywhere. You see, the parts depend on the whole. What is an alternator good for apart from a car? Like a paperweight, right? I don't know. Yeah, it wouldn't be that helpful. The, the whole depends on the part, right? The car without an alternator, that battery will not stay charged. The parts are dependent on the whole, and the whole is dependent on the part, but that's not how God works. God is independent. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anyone or anything for his existence. We learned last week, God is of himself. But there's another problem here. If something has parts, then it requires a composer, right? If you don't like car illustrations, you can think of music. Can you imagine if you just combined all the notes together? How would that go, right? Each note's a part. What would that sound like? No, notes have to be arranged by a composer. A car has to be composed, built by a, a mechanic or built by the people that build cars, machines, right? Well, who put God together? Who composed God? If God is parts, who put the parts together? If God was compound, he would depend, his existence would depend on a composer, and then that composer would be supreme. And that would be God, right? So that doesn't, that doesn't work. Well, the other problem is parts are fragile. Composite things are fragile. Bananas don't really break down. I don't know. You could probably prove, you, know, you can maybe show me a broken down banana. But like, you know what I mean. Bananas don't break down in the same way a computer or a car breaks down. Things that consist of parts can be dissolved. They're reducible. They're composite. Things are mutable. They're incomplete. They're fragile. I might have told you this story before, but when I was in seminary, I decided I didn't like know, not knowing about cars. So I got a job at a garage. And they're like, yeah, we'll teach you about cars. Go change oil for four months. <laughs> um, but uh, I promise this was not me. But we did tires too. Uh, but, but my coworker, my esteemed colleague, uh, he was putting new tires on a car and he forgot to put the, the lug nuts on a wheel on Jeep Cherokee. So the Jeep Cherokee got down on the lift, drove down the road, and guess what happened? The wheel fell off, right? The wheels don't fall off of God. He is not made of, he's not made of parts. Things that are made of parts can be corrupted. They can decompose. They, they, can, they can begin to conflict with one another, right? Have you ever heard a sound that comes from your car when your brake pads wear out? Lots of car illustrations tonight, sorry. <laughs> but have you, have you heard that sound before? It's not good. You hear that brake pad without any of the, what is it, carbon, whatever that stuff is, uh, rubbing on that rotor. It's not good, right? It's conflict. Friends, our God is indestructible. You can't break him. He doesn't wear out, and he is not in conflict with himself. He is not in inner turmoil. So now think about how this actually applies to your life. So Christian, when you sin, God's not conflicted over how he feels about you. His wrath does not threaten to splinter his love for you. And it's because God is simple. Part of the glory of the cross is that it is an expression of the simplicity of God and the consistency of his righteous character. Your car may break down. The atom 
may fall apart and the wrath of God will be poured out on the world. But you, Christian, if you're in Christ, you're safe. You're safe. And that's because the character of God is stable. Because God is simple. So, okay, so we've had a few diagrams of how we can't conceptualize God. Are there any that can help us conceptualize God? Well, Wayne Grudem offers this suggestion. So say that each line, let's say the vertical lines are one attribute of God and the horizontal lines are another, right? So this is helpful in that they are all within God and there's, there's, no, there's no parts here. And perhaps we could keep going, right? And each of his attributes being illustrated like this. So perhaps if that is helpful for you. And remember, this is just an illustration. But the point is that God is simple. He's a unity. He's completely integrated in himself and infinitely perfect in each of his attributes. So we want to deny that God is the sum, the total sum of his attributes, and affirm that he is his attributes. This means that God's attributes, his qualities, cannot be separated or divided or lost. It means God cannot suspend any of his attributes even for a moment because if he did, he would cease to be God. If God decided to suspend his holiness for a moment, he would not be God because God is holy. God is his attributes. One theologian said his attributes are identical to his existence. Now I know this is stretching you. It's stretching me. It's stretching me to try to explain it. (laughs) Um, But bear with me. Can we rightly talk about his attributes? If this is true, is it wrong? Is it wrong? Is it right for us to talk about God's attributes, right? Because if this is all consistent, then it seems like that if we talk about one of his attributes, then we're in danger of neglecting others, right? If God is holy, all of his attributes, can we ever even identify specific ones? But it seems like the Bible does that. Doesn't God himself at times single out particular attributes? The Bible speaks of a God of wrath and he speaks of a God of love. And I think that when we talk about the simplicity of God, we want to say that no. God is not divided into, into parts, but we do want to affirm that the Bible does emphasize particular attributes at different times. You see what I'm saying? So, so God is not made of parts, but the Bible does talk about and emphasize particular attributes. So I think that that language is helpful. You see, we have to remember that when God reveals himself to us, he's condescending to us, right? Some theologians, they used to call this baby talk. God would, that, that, it's like God using baby talk. Have you ever tried to talk to a very young child and you explain it? Right? You have to talk down to them. God is talking down to us in the most profound way. He stoops to our level so that we can try to understand. Friends, we are unable. We are unable to grasp all of his character at one time. That is one of the big takeaways here. You see how close this is to the incomprehensibility of God? We cannot grasp all of God, and we cannot even grasp all of his attributes at one time. We can't keep them all in view. And so we speak in terms, limited by language, that help us here. 
So one way, one way to see this is the names of God. Have you ever thought about this before? Right? I mean, what is the name of, if, if someone's to ask you, what is the name of God? Is it El? Is it Elohim? Is it Yahweh? Is it Adonai? Is it Jehovah? Is it Jehovah Jireh? Is it El Elyon? Right? Could we not go on and on and on? Or is it I am that I am? All those names are given to God in the scriptures. Is it one of them or is it all of them? Is it all of them and more? You see, here's what's incredible to think about. No one name of God is able to describe the fullness, infinite God. We need many. God was not able to give us one name that describes him in his fullness like that. And so we are thankful for many. You see, the attributes of God enable us to speak truly about the infinite perfections of God and to consider his beauty from all sorts of different angels, uh, angles. Speaking of angels, angels in the outfield, right? Matthew Barrett, the theologian who helped me try to understand this, he likens this to a baseball game, right? And apparently angels in the outfield. Or let's, let's think about the ETSU. ETSU's baseball field has a thousand seats, right? And you could go to a baseball game there, and if you sit in behind the dugout or in the dugout, or if you sit in the outfield, rather behind the outfield, or behind home plate, in each one of those different seats, you're able to view the game, the spectacle. But in each seat, you have a different point of view. It's a slightly different angle of the spectacle of God, and that's what God's attributes are like. When we look at one of the attributes of God, they are giving us a different perspective of his manifold beauty, beauty that far outshines a diamond, which we would cut and look at from all different angles. That's what the attributes of God are like. They are far too beautiful to see or comprehend all at once. So God stoops to us and explains them little pieces at a time, which even then we can't grasp fully. What a thrilling thought. The, church, the early church fathers have helped me as I've thought about all this stuff. And I, I, I've been trying to include some more quotes recently so that you would know that there are lots of Christians who have thought about these things before us. We're not starting from scratch when we think about this. The church has wrestled with these questions all throughout the ages. And so I have a lengthy quote. It's really a paragraph that I'd like to read from uh, St. Augustine on the attributes of God. And I think it illustrates this, but I, I pray that it strikes in your heart a sense of awe before we move to application. Just listen, listen carefully as I, as I read this. And, and some of this I adapted the language to be more modern. Um, St. Augustine. Most high, most excellent, most powerful, most all-powerful, most compassionate and most just, most hidden and most near, most beautiful and most strong and stable, yet not contained, unchangeable, yet changing all things, never new, never old, making all things new, yet bringing old age upon the proud, always working, yet ever at rest, gathering, yet needing nothing, sustaining, pervading, and protecting, creating, nourishing, and developing, seeking, and yet possessing all things. You love, but do not burn with passion. You are jealous, yet free from worry. You repent, yet have no regrets. 
You were angry yet peaceful. You change your ways but leave your plans unchanged. You recover what you find having never yet lost it in the first place. You never need anything but you rejoice in gain. You do not covet yet you require your stewards return interest to you in order that you may owe more than enough that is given to you. Yet who has anything that is already that is not already yours? You pay off debts while owing nothing. And when you forgive debts, you lose nothing. The attributes, the manifold attributes of God. Now let's talk about application for, for a few moments. And I, I want to I give a word of warning here, because I, I was thinking, this perhaps a warning to myself as I think about some of these things. I think that there can sometimes be a danger. It's a danger for me when I read theology and try to think about God that, that when it comes to application. And the danger is that sometimes we want to know, how does this apply to my life right away? Tell me, why do I care about the simplicity of God? It's like my math question in high school. Why in the world do I care? I'm glad someone cares, but that's not me, right? Show me why I need this in, in real life, right? We, I think we need to be careful in, 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 in saying that as a Christian, right? Because I think the temptation when we're reading things, especially things that are hard to comprehend, there's a temptation of thinking, if it doesn't apply to me immediately, then I'm not really sure why I need it. And, and I understand the sentiment. I, I struggle with that. But I think we need to be careful. And, and here's why. God does not exist for you. We exist for him. And so God in all his beauty and splendor, if, if we are try to behold him and he's beyond our wildest imagination and what we were able to comprehend and you don't know how to apply right away, that's okay, right? Just because we can't perceive something's immediate relevance, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be interested because it's not about us, it's about God. Now that being said, I really think there's always application. Because God's word always requires a response. And the ways, one of the primary ways we need to respond to this truth, as in all these truths, is awe. I've, I've prayed so much today and this week that I would be able to communicate this in a way that is clear enough so that you could, you could see God. And we need his spirit to do that. I can't describe. I can't do that. We're dependent on his spirit. But when we hear the glorious truth of the simplicity of God, the right response should not only be confusion, but awe. Our heart should be in awe, even if you don't understand it in full. I don't understand it in full. My prayer today has been that what baffles you would also thrill you. Your God is not small, friends. He cannot be explained by some guy who read a book, right? He is beyond our abilities to grasp. And I think one of the things that the simplicity of God teaches us is that God is not like you and me. He's not like us. We are dependent. We are composed. We, and He is independent and unified in all of His perfections. God is wholly other. The simplicity of God should help tune our hearts to sing the song of the prophet. You think of the Lord in Isaiah 40, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? That must ring in our hearts. And we say, no one, 
No one is like our God. He is incomparable. We should say, like the angels in Isaiah's vision, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of the glory. And we should say like Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. But I have seen the King. I pray that this doctrine, as baffling as it may be, may produce that in our hearts. I think one of the main things that I've learned in considering the simplicity of God is that if we are unable to grasp all of his character and beauty and all of his attributes at one time, then that means something wonderful. No matter how much of the Lord's beauty you're beholding, there is always more. Isn't that a wonderful thought? There is always more. Even if you have the fullness of one attribute, There's always more. And guess what? There will always be more. For all eternity, there will always be more glory for you to behold. And it's God's kindness that he will reveal it to us. I remember when I went to Yosemite, I've only been one time. It was a a life-changing experience for me. I remember driving into the valley, if you've ever seen Yosemite, and I just remember being stuck stunned by the beauty of Yosemite. And we could only stay for two days and when we were driving out, I mean, I was, I was like heartbroken to leave. My wife and I were both really, it was so sad to leave. But we were driving out and it took us two hours to get out of the park. And the whole time I was just like, we'd come around and there's a crystal lake and there's this majestic redwood. I'm like, there's more, there's more everywhere. There's, there's more, there's more. Friends, it's the same way with God. And yet, he spoke in Yosemite, existed There's more. There is more to God. Friends, your God is too small. Your view of God is too small. So I pray that our view will have expanded tonight. We need all. I think a second point of application is we must not play favorites with God's attributes. If God is not made up of parts, and if he is all of his attributes then we must not pick our favorites, right? Because the moment I pick my favorites is the moment I'm elevating one quality above another. Elevating the love and the wisdom of God above others. And in doing so, I attribute fault to the other attributes. That they're not as good as his love. Or that his sovereignty or that his justice, right? That, that doesn't work. If I like the fact that God is love more than I like the fact that God is holy, where's the problem? It's with me, Right? That means I'm not thinking highly, I'm not thinking of his holiness highly enough. You see? It also means that when we have favorite attributes that we are misunderstanding God. Making him into our own image after our own likeness. It's really interesting. If you think, I like to think about hymns and if you think about the body of hymnody that we have. Wouldn't you think if we were to go through and do a scatter graph... How many of some attributes would, are mentioned and how many are not mentioned? There's, a, there's a, a song I heard recently called The God of Wrath. Right? They celebrate that he's the God of Wrath. And we can do that if we understand it's an expression of his righteousness and even his love. Friends, we must always be striving to see the full view of God in every text, in every circumstance, and in every thought. And finally, and we'll close with this, the simplicity of God should be a comfort to us. 
If God is simple, then God is stable. He does not change. He is not a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. The God of yesterday will be the same God of tomorrow. The kindness that he showed the people of Israel in the land of Canaan flows from the same heart with which he loves you and orders your life. So we can look all over redemptive history and know what God is like. We can tell by his actions. We can tell by his words. And we can always be sure all of his actions, even the ones that we don't understand, all of them are consistent with all of his attributes. God is always wise, so everything he does will always be wise. All of the time. Friends, this should be a great source of comfort to us. God is not made up of parts. He's not changing. He's not improving. He doesn't need maintenance. At this exact moment, God is as perfect as he has always been. And here's the glorious news. Friend, if you are in Christ, then that means that he is pleased with you. He's determined that to be true. And he won't change his mind because he can't be corrupted. He is constantly reliable. As he told Moses, I am who I am. And as we know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we pray that you would help us to grasp whatever we can. Let us leave here tonight with our hearts full of awe and more convinced than ever that you are better than we thought. Help us to leave with a sense of trembling as we stand before you, longing to know you, and more thrilled than ever that Jesus Christ has made a way for us to stand in your presence and delight. We ask this in your name, even as we go. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.